0: I sing a song of the saints of God, patient and brave and true, who toiled and fought and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. And one was a doctor, and one was a queen, and one was a shepherdess on the green, they were all of the saints of God,
1: and That's I Hello, and welcome to Tea Time Theology. Our guests today are the Reverend Dante Tavalera from St. Thomas Greenville and Olive Swinsky from Church of the Redeemer in Providence, and we are talking about General Convention. Hi, Dante. Hi, Olive. Thank Hi. you so much for being here today. Hi, Ivy. Thanks for having me. So, yeah. we are talking about general convention but the like capital general convention is it called something else or is that like what they actually call it
2: no just called general convention
1: um what is it and why does it matter
3: well so general convention is basically the church politics for the entire episcopal church um and it's a gathering where all of the major decisions are made so everything from who the presiding bishop will be to the church's views on different um politics or
2: if you imagine congress general convention is like congress just with a lot more jesus Mm -hmm. um so general convention it's the triennial governing body so usually it meets every three years this past summer um, was a little bit different because of it got delayed a year. But every three years, it's a bicameral legislature. So remember your you know elementary school civics classes. Uh, so we meet in two houses: the House of Bishops and the House of Deputies. House of Bishops is mm, all the bishops. House of Deputies is comprised of uh, four clergy deputies and four lay deputies from every diocese within the church.
1: It doesn't matter how many people are in each diocese. No, nope,
2: everybody gets the same the same number. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Olive was saying, um, you know, it's General Convention where the budget for the, the whole of the Episcopal Church is passed. We look at resolutions around liturgy, social politics, um, and anything really around the life of the church. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's laypeople and priests and deacons and bishops together making those decisions. And just like in Congress, um, you know, uh, when a bill becomes a law, it's got to pass the House and the Senate in the same form. Same is true for general convention. So like the bishops can't pull and run around the deputies and the deputies can't do the same thing to the bishops. It's got to pass both houses to go into effect.
1: Awesome. And how is it decided who gets to go there?
2: So every diocese elects their deputies uh, in advance at their diocesan conventions. And so people discern to run or not. And if they run, they put their name in and then the diocese vote and so, the diocese get to pick their lay, rep- their lay and clergy representation in the House of Deputies.
1: Awesome. And my second question is why do you think it's important? I mean, Dante, you've been going since you were like a small child, so <laughs> it seems like, to convention. Like, what is this, your sixth one or something? Uh,
2: so, this past summer, nine, 12, So, this was my fourth time as a deputy, fifth time going this past summer. <laughs> I went in high school as a volunteer and then um, was elected as a deputy. Um, And for me, I think it's important um, because it is a way to make a difference and an impact on the church. And things that happen at General Convention directly impact parish life. And one of the things I am particularly passionate about is um, our liturgical life, and General Convention sets the tone for a lot of that in authorizing liturgies. And as, a, as the youngest priest in the diocese and on the younger end of clergy across the Episcopal Church, um, I recognize the changes we make now. Some of those won't be in effect until many of the people making those decisions are retired, and I'm going to, have to be half to one living with that. And so I want to make sure that my voice is heard in that arena
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and also thinking about my own life experiences different than some of my other colleagues. And so making sure that perspective is in, in that arena as well
3: yeah and I think also as like a lay person it's important to me that the Episcopal Church stands for something so I know you know there's Jesus and we follow Jesus but the general convention translates what that looks like in the Episcopal life so it's the policies and legislation that really spells out how we as Episcopalians live out the word of God. And I think that matters.
1: (laughs) I hope it matters. (laughs) Um, So... uh, um, What were some of the issues that came up at convention? I know from my Facebook following, because I have a lot of clergy on my Facebook, um, that you elected a new head of lay people. What was it? No. Who is Gail? (laughs) So we
3: (laughs) elected a new president and vice president of the House of Deputies. That sounds so much more official. It is a lot more official, and it's also really important because... Just like the um, general convention is split into bishops and non-bishops as the two houses, the person who is the president of the House of Deputies kind of sets the tone for not only the general convention, but also the time in between. So they're the ones... Helping to make decisions for the three years
1: when we're not meeting. What what kind of like what is their job?
2: So this is the. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that's I think a really cool change with that position is it used to be more or less a volunteer thing, and now mm-hmm. it's actually a paid position, um, which means that it is opened up to a much broader pool of candidates because not everyone can volunteer a significant amount of their time, energy, and resources. Without being compensated for that, and so this slate um, from which we elected the president of the House of Deputies um, was the most diverse slate I think in in any point. And so um, you know, we at this past general convention, we elected the first Latina woman, and I believe she's also in her forties. And so she is the youngest um, and all the time I've been paying attention to general convention. She is by far the youngest i mean everybody else was basically retired because those are the folks who can afford to do such a thing and so um julia harris is our our current president of the house of deputies and she works closely with she's a member of the executive council for the whole of the episcopal church that they help put into place the things that happen at general convention they help put those into place between general conventions they make those decisions as things come up they they help take Here's the big picture stuff General Convention said, and how are we gonna a little bit more concretely live that out? So she works closely with the presiding bishop, with the officers of the Episcopal Church, um, and so helping lead those things. And, and she also travels around the church speaking to diocesan people to help bring that broader connection of what you do, what we do here in Rhode Island is connected with what people are doing in California and mm-hmm. in the convocational churches in Europe and in parts of Latin America as well. Um, just kind of in the same way where you know, diocesan convention and the bishop's office are that way to help remind us that what we do here at St. Thomas-Greenville is connected to what the Church of the Redeemer does in Providence um, by helping us keep that diocesan focus. You know, the President has to deputies. One of her job is to help keep us that wider focus of we are not in isolation in our states, but we are part of a wider body of people doing the work of God.
1: That's awesome. Next time, I'll run for it. Yes! Um, <laughs> no. um, but what other... Um, that was the only one that I knew about, as like a person on the sidelines. What did you all vote on this year? Like, what what decisions were made? What was put into pen and paper? No pencil.
2: No pencil, just pen. And paper. <laughs> well, the other thing, just before we leave, kind of the mm-hmm. officers. When we elected a new president, we also elected a new vice president. And what has historically been true, this is not required, but this is the this is the practice or no, sorry, this is required. Um, it is required that if the president is a layperson, the vice president is a clergy person and vice versa. So if the president is a clergy person, the vice president is a layperson. And so we elected, um, I believe, the first indigenous woman oh. to serve in that role. And so Rachel Tabor Hamilton is the um, is a priest of the church and is also the vice president of the House of Deputies. And so I think part of showing the movement of where the church is, we have two women of color leading the House of Deputies, the Mm -hmm. first time that has um, ever happened. And I think that's a really, really cool thing, Mm -hmm. which leads into that, I think, some of the things we talked about, because issues of anti-racism and racial reconciliation work was a big topic of conversation, I think, for a whole variety of reasons, the present moment of time we're living in and the reckoning that's happening in our world, but the fact that we were in Baltimore and the Diocese of Maryland is doing that work. And so we heard clearly about some of the work that they're doing, including around work of reparations. you know, we looked at legislation, and past legislation, around doing particular um, financial audits uh, and forensic financial audits around how the church has benefited from, from, from slavery and from, you know, white supremacy and thinking about getting that information and then figure out, okay, how do we do what is essentially the work of reparations? Because we're only where we are today as a church, and this is true of our diocese and many of our parishes as well, because of how the church financially benefited from slavery and all of the ongoing things from from slavery to this present day so you know light topics for eight o'clock in the morning which was you know often when we were gathering at general convention
1: that's so mean eight o'clock in the morning did you start the day with prayer like did you start with morning prayer yes we either started with the eucharist
2: or, or morning prayer so okay you know, it's Congress with Jesus, so we do pray.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and, and worship there is a really cool thing, and, mm-hmm. and we can certainly, if you want, we can talk more about that, too. But so we start with kind of prayer, and then we go into legislative and in legislative sessions.
1: Oh, okay, cool. I'm just trying to see, like, what was the vibe of the yeah. day? Like, what did it look like while you were there? Like, you kind of, like, run away for an extended amount of time and come back.
2: The days are long. Yes. Very, very long. Um do you want to say a bit all about what the, our days looked like?
3: Sure. So we would gather in the morning for worship, either you know Eucharist or morning prayer, in either English or Spanish, and then we would have a break, and then we would go right into our legislative session. Um, and there was usually a consent calendar, which of all the work that. Um, happened at general convention, probably the consent calendars, getting those passed is how most of the legislation is passed. Um, so we would meet, we would break for meals, and because we had a shorter um, a shorter amount of time than in past years, we would typically meet um, three times a day. So we would be there until eight or nine at night working on legislation. Um, And then there was one moment where we had kind of like a joint session um, for the presentation of the budget which the bishops came and sat in the back of the House of Deputies. And this is important (laughs) because Typically, bishops are banned from the floor with the exception of like a very special joint session because they want to make sure that bishops are not influencing Mm -hmm. the lay and clergy delegates. So this joint session was um, like the only time that the bishops are allowed to
1: come down to see us. Does that joint session happen every year? or Was this year special? Yeah. So
2: there, every year there are joint sessions, mm-hmm. um, always with the budget, occasionally with other things as well. Um, what usually happens is um, the bishops aren't don't usually sit in the back of the room. That was they were trying to keep pods and things, and for COVID reasons. Um, but usually, what happens, and there was actually, I think some some people had some real serious grieving, and there was even one moment where there was um, we were told, you know. Bishops, don't you dare do this and try to sneak onto the floor. Because when joint sessions would happen, the deputies sit at long tables, and then there's seats on the end of each deputation row, and that's where the bishops would sit. And so, and one of the big traditions at general convention is there's the stanchions with your diocesan name on it. So when we have those joint sessions, because that's the only time bishops, strictly speaking, are allowed on the floor of the House of Deputies, deputations would take pictures with their stanchions, which get decorated with symbols of their state. And then um, – but that wasn't possible this year, though. I do, I did see some people carrying their sentience off the floors to the open areas to do those sorts of pictures. But, um, but but, the only people who are allowed on the floor of the House of Deputies, and who even get special name badges, are the deputies themselves. And mm-hmm. so there's, like, volunteers who offer security. And so, like, they will – like, if you don't have the right badge, you're like, no, sorry, you ain't coming on this floor. And I've watched um, lots of people, including bishops, kind of, you know, try to get through over the years. And they're like, no, sorry. You can, just like in the same way, um, you can go observe the House of Bishops, but because I don't have a bishops t- you know tag, I can't get into the floor of the House of Bishops. I can only sit in the kind of observer's area. So it's the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of funny to see all the bishops in the back of the house this year.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. And you kind of touched on this, but I'd love to talk about it a little more, that like this year did run <coughs> differently than in past years. It was... Um, shortened so I want to know what you two first of all thought about that I mean I have opinions but I wasn't there so um, I'd love to know what you thought about the different running of this year um, and do you think it was a good idea do you think it was a good idea do you think it made it so you could still achieve everything you needed to I can mention. unless Dante you want to talk about how it normally runs like the length of time and then we can talk about how this year was different.
2: Is that, that okay? Yeah. Okay. So general convention in other years and not in the pre-COVID times um, was, so my first convention was, a, I think, a little over two weeks long, and which is a massive commitment. And, and when I say a little over two weeks, that includes, like, your travel day there and, like, coming back. And we, we got there a day or so before convention, you know, got underway. And then um, we're there for, like, you know, two weeks or something like that. And it's a really long amount of time to be there. Um, But what that allowed for was lots of time for things beyond legislative sessions. Um, And so you had um, this year, you know, where we would go late to the evening. Normally when you broke for dinner, like there were not, the house didn't meet until the next morning. There might be committee hearings later, but so all of the committee hearings happened in person. There would be special presentations and dinners and all sorts of other stuff that happened and in a time for fellowship beyond the legislative work that I think is an important part of general convention because it's the time when people from every province of the church and every diocese of the church can come together and so you can get a sense of how God is working in places that you've never known before and that are very different than wherever your home context is. Now over the triennium since I've been there, convention has been getting a little bit shorter. Um, just because that's a really long time and it costs a whole lot of money um, to make general convention happen. But there's still been incentives sense as we've shortened it, to allow for that fellowship, those meals, those presentations, all those other things to happen. Um, and then, so I don't now remember what the day length we had said before, and then we would add a day for the year we elected the presiding bishop um, because when the presiding bishop is elected, all of the bishops, it's generally on a Sunday, so you have like the morning Eucharist, The bishops wear their Rosh and Shamir, so like the white things with the red vests over them, Um, their choir, which is their choir dress. They'd all wear that. And then they go off to a church and they vote. And so the bishops really aren't doing any other business that day. And then the House of Deputies generally does some other business and then receives that vote whenever it happens. So that adds a day. So this was much shorter. All of the committee hearings happened generally in advance, and so that that allowed for it to be much shorter so do you want to say more about so what was it actually like there this time
3: sure so i think um you know to your question of was it a good idea or not to shorten it this much i think it was a necessary thing to happen mostly because of you know
1: covid but how much was it shortened so we went from like Two weeks ish, maybe an extra day or two. Yeah. So we went one. from
2: like nine I want to say it was like nine eight or nine legislative days to four.
3: Wow.
1: That is Yes. Funny. That is more than fifty percent gone. <laughs> right. That's a
3: lot. Right. And so with that, you know, it meant that the consent calendars were really long and there wasn't a lot of discussion um about A lot of different topics that there may have been in previous years so probably things were passed that we won't know the impact of for a while just because of the sheer volume especially because every like morning i believe we would get a new consent calendar so you're getting out at eight or nine reading all of these different things to then vote on the next morning. Like, it's exhausting.
2: Every session has a consent calendar. Ah,
3: thank you, yeah. So it's it's a lot. Uh-huh. And we passed a lot, and we probably don't even know all the things we've passed, which is not a great way to run things. Um, <laughs> no. But also, the, the shortened format did allow for me to take less vacation days, which was wonderful. And I'm, you know, privileged in that I do have vacation days. So for me to only have to take less than a week because it was over a weekend allows me more flexibility in my life. Um, Yeah. So I would love
2: to like thinking about what was different and was it worth all those sorts of things. And I think, Reflecting on my previous general conventions and this one, um, I would like to see a blending of pre-COVID practices and COVID practices as we get ready for General Convention twenty twenty four. I think four business days I think is is probably not quite sufficient for the House of Deputies. The House of Deputies is significantly larger than the House of Bishops, so the tone and the vibe is radically different from the two. And so, um, you know, it'd be interesting if Bishop Nyesi were here because I think his experience is is very different by the fact that he's in the House of Bishops and not in the House of Deputies. Um, so for us, while the bishops had the space, for example, there's a lot of contention around some stuff we did around liturgy and the prayer book. The bishops had the space to like to sleep on stuff and have a small group of bishops work together to try to figure some things out from different perspectives. And and the House of Deputies just didn't have that luxury. And so as all I've said, a lot of things that are thrown on the consent calendar it was much harder than ever before to remove things from the consent calendar. And the rules around debate about how long we could debate things and and, and those sorts of things were all extremely truncated. And so it meant that we went into – we were discussing big and really important things, and I don't think we're actually allowed the space for that real discernment because we were trying to rush through to get so much done. I mean, there was, I think, well over 400 – resolutions that were passed in four days maybe more than that i don't remember the final total now
1: so it's um, like 100 a day you had to get yeah
2: probably actually days. it may even be closer to like 600 it was some like ridiculous number for the amount of time we did but not only will we not know the the impact of those things for a long time there will be things that were passed at general convention and this is always true it will be i think more this year there are always things that we pass at general convention that um get lost to the journals of convention so like for example and this is one that I know well because I was one of the authors of this resolution. We passed a resolution in 2009 to—and and the language also means this, but it was a, to highly recommend. We didn't require, but it was like a recommended thing, that all forms that come out of the church from the national church level to parish level should make room for preferred name and preferred pronouns on there. Um, the only people who know that was resolution passed, I think, were those of us who were, were responsible for making that into practice— and it went nowhere. Now, part of that is it had no teeth. It was just a recommended thing. But it was one thing. There was hearings on because every resolution has to have a hearing. And then it ended up in the consent calendar. So there was no real kind of debate or anything around it. So I think there's a lot of stuff that we do that just gets put aside. And then things that I think did get shortchanged because of where we are. So I think going forward, maybe a little bit longer. In 2024, we'll elect another presiding bishop. So maybe you know add add two days to it. So you get six legislative days because we're electing a new presiding bishop. And then also giving the space for having, excuse me, the exhibit hall back and to see this, you know, which is which we didn't have this year, to allow space for presentations and 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 lectures and debates and um, evening meals and those sorts of. So adding that social formation event uh, formation components back, with giving us a little bit more time so we can debate those things. At the same time, I think we realize yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we don't actually have to do that we've been doing, and so like let's get rid of that which is unnecessary to give us time to talk about the more necessary things. Like one of the things that um, that we did at this convention, and I think Rhode Island should, should have some pride in this, is because um, our Archdeacon Emeritus is one of the authors of the resolution, Jan Grinnell. Um, the church has long said that we support and have the full inclusion of LGBT people, LGBTQ people. and But there's been no real meaningful work to make our intent match the impact. And so it's all been kind of haphazard of some places really committing to that, others not so much. And so there's now a resolution requiring that dioceses train their clergy and other and lay leaders in using safe zone training. And so in an LGBT awareness training, and not only is that required, dioceses have to begin that work before 2024 and report back to general convention. And so, I mean, Jan was part of that great resolution that had some real teeth to it and that passed largely without any real recognition or conversation. I think it was probably even on the consent calendar. And so there are things like that that I think really should have gotten more press and more time um, because I think that is a really great thing for us to celebrate and that just moved on. And what I worry is, particularly because of like how that resolution, for example, passed, it's, it's going to be harder to implement that because there are going to be some places that are not going to want to do that and it's going to be harder for... To get that traction and be like oh well we didn't realize this happened sort of
1: thing are are there like any repercussions if you like don't do things like that like i'm sure there are other not just that one specifically but i'm sure there are other things that pass that like have those sort of real teeth to them as you said
2: Generally, no. I don't think, even I mean, even here on a diocesan level, things that are required, there's no real penalty. I should be mm-hmm. careful saying this because then, you know, they're going to start happening. But there's lots of things that we require in a whole host of levels, diocesan levels to the wider church levels, that there's not really any sense of consequence should you not do them, with the exception of, like, the disciplinary canons for clergy, but that's a whole different story. Um, so I don't think these have any real repercussions. I'd love to see that be a thing, but, you know... I don't think at the moment that is.
1: That's um, right. So, now talking about sort of the impact of convention on sort of like our day to day life in your diocese, how does general convention feed into what happens at diocesan convention? Like, how do they sort of speak in conversation to each other, or do they not?
3: Well, so whenever there's a general convention, there's always a presentation at the following convention um, about what was discussed. Another thing is these resolutions that we've been talking about, they get to the general convention in various ways, and one of them is from various diocesan conventions. So we could as the diocese of rhode island recommend a potential resolution to a general convention so that's one of the ways that it feeds into that also sometimes we have to like accept resolutions if i remember correctly yes
2: yeah, so actually at the what year is Twenty the, the 2021 convention of the episcopal diocese of rhode island we actually sent, um, approved at our diocesan convention, two resolutions to go to general convention, which is a, a pretty cool thing and, and not something we've often done here in Rhode Island. Some dioceses are much more prolific in their resolution writing. But yeah, as I said, there's a report back. And then there are certain things that happen at general convention that, and around canon changes and constitution changes and other things that have to actually get like read into the minutes of your diocesan convention to like, inform the people. And then there's a whole list that the Secretary of General Convention sends to each diocese of like, here are some of the action items that happen and implications for you. And so my guess is at this point, some members of our diocesan staff, along with the chair of the general convention deputation, are probably working through those things and figuring out, okay, so which committee, which group needs to do these things need to go to so that we can actually act upon them and and make sure that here in Rhode Island we are following what you know the example and the tone that the wider church has set at its general convention.
1: And would you mind talking a little bit about like what does diocesan convention look like that's different than general convention sort of like in how it runs do, do you, do you want me what, to take that one what the vibe <laughs> is <laughs> i know that's kind of like a harder question but i think that it is cool to sort of understand that like everything happens in this it's sort of like on um, those russian nesting dolls where you have yeah. like the church that runs the same way sort of and then they go to the larger diocese which then goes to the larger, dio- like right. that sort of nesting so, right, Bye. so you have, like,
2: general convention and then diocesan conventions and, then like, you know, parish annual meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can think of kind of there, – there are parallels that, that grow as we move to different stages. I think in some ways at their core, whether it's an annual meeting, diocesan convention, or general convention, there are some important similarities. I I would hope Jesus is at the center of all of those. Um, you know, but every community has got to figure that out. There's there's typically elements of, of fellowship um, – and connecting and building and establishing relationships. And so think about, you know, we just had our diocesan convention here in Rhode Island. And on Friday afternoon, we had a workshop. And then we had the Eucharist, that time for um, some formation and conversation together, and that time for fellowship and sharing meals and worship together. And then there's the legislative business side. Um, So that happens, you know, uh, I can think about our annual meeting here. We often share a meal together, have those relationships, think about what we've done. And then we have that kind of business portion of the meeting, church diocesan convention, church general convention. Um, obviously there's, we don't meet in two different houses at diocesan convention. There's not Mm -hmm. like a house of bishops and a house of, you know, house of deputies.
1: Don't they separate it though for votes for clergy and lay?
2: Yeah. So that's something a little bit different. So,
1: um,
2: I'm just, as I was thinking about, there's no house of bishops like in Rhode Island. Like we don't put like Bishop Jocelyn and Bishop Nisley, like alone in a room Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. to like hang out and then everybody else meets, um. So what you're just describing is, is actually called vote by orders. So that happens mm. at General Convention and Diocesan Convention. So there are certain types of resolutions. And the rules at diocesan, in our diocese are different than at General Convention of how this and when this happens, where a vote by orders is required. And so what a vote by orders means is that all of the clergy vote and all of the lay vote. And in order to pass, you have to have a majority or a 2 thirds majority, depending on what the requirement is, of clergy votes and lay votes. So we actually had a lot of these at General Convention because certain changes um, to our governing documents required two reads. You have to actually pass them at two successive general conventions. Mm-hmm. And the second one requires a vote by orders. And we did about a bajillion, and that's a technical term, of some of these where we were changing, I kid you not, changing a word order. So like it went from like bishops suffragan b- um, bishops to bishops suffragan. But every time we did that, we had to do a vote by orders. And so... Voting is electronic now at general convention, and so um, the chair of the deputation has a special card to that accesses this, this stuff. and And Scott Avedisian is the was the chair of our deputation this time or this past time around, and he would have to say to every all four lay deputies and all four clergy deputies, how are you voting on this? And then he would calculate, and if it's um, if all four people vote in favor, then it's a yes vote. If the vote is split two and two. It's, it's, effect, it's a divided, which is effectively a no vote. And then obviously if like one person votes and the other vote no, it's a no vote. Um, and so we have to do that every time. I do wish in our pre-electronic days, um, all the deputies actually literally had to sign their name next to a vote. And so um, like we have a paper record of when the Episcopal Church added um, gender identity expression to our non-discrimination canons. Um, I actually have a copy of that paper vote. Where every person in the Rhode Island Deputation signed and voted, like voted yes for that. So that's a vote by orders, where it has to be separate. We do that a lot more at General Convention than we do at Diocesan Convention. I think probably the last time we had a vote of or- by orders here in Rhode Island um, was probably when we elected Bishop Nisley. Um, and so we can do those in Rhode Island, but how our Diocesan Canons work, it's a much rarer thing to do. So.
1: And does each diocese have its own diocesan canons that they have to live by? Yes. Is so, anything standardized? <laughs> so,
2: so in some ways, like right there's there's our diocese. So just like this, your state constitution can't contradict the United States Constitution. Um, our diocesan constitution and our diocesan constitution canons can't contradict the national canon. So like, hmm. the national canons can not say and. and you have to do X,YZ and then the diocese, yeah, we're going to do one, two, three instead. Like that's some places try to do that, strictly speaking, that is uh, not allowed. Um, and so so there are some standard general things, but every place is different. And you know, sometimes places will change canons to reflect particular situations that have happened in that diocese that might not have happened elsewhere. Um, and so I mean like relating to general convention, we have a provision in our diocesan canons that say, um, you have to not only be canonically resident in Rhode Island to go to general convention, but you have to like physically be here because in the past people have been elected when they're here in Rhode Island. They take a job elsewhere in another diocese, but their residence stays in Rhode Island, which is a just know they're still technically here in Rhode Island, even though they're serving in another place. And we've said, well, no, you've got to be here. If you're going to be general. So that, that was a particular situation here that caused us to change our canons. So that's so every just like every parish has different bylaws, every diocese has different constitution and canons.
1: Awesome.
2: Sorry, I get really excited about canons.
1: No, I love canons. So, one other question if you're changing like wording of the prayer book or canons or stuff like that, does that mean that after each convention, like we should technically reprint all of our prayer books and like change that?
2: No, because prayer book revision is like its whole own ball of wax. Um, and there's, so the the last time we get a new book of common prayer was in 1979. So Mm -hmm. before any of us sitting around this table were alive or thought of or thought of, right? (laughs) Like that's a decade before I was born. Mm -hmm. Um, which my parishioners really hate when I say things like that. Um, and so, um, but it is a massive process. It, You get trial prayer books and trial liturgies that go through. People try them out. They work on them. I mean, you're talking about a significant amount of money and like 12 to 15 years from when we say we're going to do prayer book revision to when you actually get a new prayer book. One of the things that does happen and happens much more frequently is instead of changing the prayer book, though we've done that, and um, is the opinion of this deputy in some problematic ways that make me very cranky, like the readings for Holy Week, but I mean, that's another story. Um, what we have done is we've done, we've created new liturgies. We do things like enriching our worship, which is um, e- has been easier to change. We've created supplemental liturgies. And so that's how we kind of get around. Um, and we've managed, for better or for worse, to not have to do a new prayer book every three years and not go through that process of years, but still allowing for new liturgies and new things mm-hmm. to emerge.
1: What about the canons, though? Because aren't the canons printed in the prayer book? So, if, no? Nope.
2: So, the constitution and canons are, are kept separately. Okay. And those um, those do get printed every three years. Though, at this point, it's largely, those are, like, you can buy hard copies, like, print copies of them, but largely those are electronically. Just like every time we amend, um, we don't do this every year here in Rhode Island. Um, we have the last couple, but every time the canons are changed in Rhode Island, there's a new file that gets posted on our diocesan website.
1: Awesome. Um, So we had another episode with um, Della from Newport about um, Lambeth. And one of the sort of themes, I'll call it, um, that she had talked about was this sort of idea of choosing to be in community even when disagreeing on certain things and sort of like the choice of the Anglican church to stay together. Um, is that something you saw at general convention too, sort of like that choice that what is important to us is our larger Episcopal identity. Is that not something you saw? Or was that just like a whole different vibe and it wasn't brought up at all? <laughs> Well, I think kind of like
3: Dante said before that there's a different vibe for the House of Bishops and a different vibe for, you know, the deputation. That That's kind of where this, um, that's what this immediately makes me think of because the bishops are able to be in relationship and actually like sit at the same table for several conventions and can build these relationships that even when there are differences can be worked through while the you know house of deputies is massive if you think of every single diocese sending eight people like it's just harder to have those core relationships that allow for working through differences. Um, and especially at this past convention where gathering outside of um, the like house, like the legislation sessions was discouraged. Um, it kind of meant that even if there was to be the building of relationships beyond difference that it just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully in the future, we can be able to gather again and work on those relationships, but also sometimes there are just things that cannot um, like get past, and we have had you know various dioceses leave the episcopal church um Dante I think you were actually like there for some of those where deputations walked out mm-hmm. um which is unfortunate but yeah you know, it's just different
2: yeah so I think the I think the house of bishops had a from what I've heard obviously like I wasn't in the, I'm not in the house of bishops, thanks be to God. Um, (laughs) they had much, that spirit that was in Lambeth, they experienced. So like, as I was saying, the bishops, they sit at, they have table groups. And so like, they sit at round tables, like we're doing now. And they get those table groups for the whole of the triennium. So between they, so every time they meet, and I think they meet like four times a year, they're sitting with those same people. The other thing is, you know, kind of once you're there, you're there. And so you build, even if it's outside of your table group, you build all these really great relationships in the House that can allow for them to have, um, to get to that we're better together sort of um, Mm -hmm. vibe. The House of Deputies, every time I've been to General Convention, is always more contentious than the House of Bishops. Because I think as a starting point, we are much larger. I mean, the House of Deputies runs, you know, know, over 800, getting close to probably 1,000 people. Whereas there's like, you know, maybe a couple hundred, not even, uh, you know, so at most 200, if you can include all the retired bishops and assistants, like, right, it's a much smaller, um, the house of bishops, much smaller than the house of deputies. Unlike bishops, deputies are elected general convention to general convention. And so there's no guarantee you're going to go more than once. And that also, whereas bishops can take a more long, a long view of things, there is always more urgency in the House of Deputies because there's never a guarantee you're going to go again. And I think that allows for more contention because people, they have things that they're passionate about and they want to push those through. And at sometimes, at no matter the cost, they want to get their thing done. I mean, the number of times I've heard General Convention Deputies say, I want to leave my mark on this church and so we're going to get this done, which I think we all have those moments, but maybe it's not the best way for us to approach things. And so I think... It it means that that kind of we're going to be in this together doesn't work. And, and I actually want to share one particular story from this past convention that I think highlights how there is not that same level of respect for where you are um, from the various um, positions we can have in the church coming together, like we saw in Lambeth, seeing the House of Deputies. So at this past general convention, one of the days, I actually wore my cassock on the floor of the House of Deputies. And I got so many... Um, like side eyes and glances and snarky comments made to me because I wore my cassock in the house of Defiance. a cassock which by definition is like streetwear for clergy. And there was a point in time left. That that's what clergy were for things. Um, I heard someone say to me, I was in line at one point to get coffee and the person behind me and I'm like, we had masks on, but I'm like, I can still hear you. Like I don't have <laughs> like earplugs in yeah. said to the person they were with, how sad to see another person lost to the conservative wing of the church. They know nothing about me, but they made all of these judgments because I were a cassock. Yeah,
1: because I would never call you a conservative clergy. Yeah.
2: I mean, there are some ways where I tend to the more traditional side, and that's true certainly liturgically. So then, like, the next day or two days later, um, I had a T-shirt that a friend of mine that I play football with got me um, that says amen but it's a comma m-e-n exclamation point and then it's jesus you know hands in the air with a rainbow colored like mm-hmm. you know uh it almost kind of looks like a toga but like kind of robe on mm-hmm. clearly uh, like saying like yeah jesus amen it's like a gay thing with jesus right yeah. i that day had people at stopping and saying can i take a picture with you asking me where i got my shirt and i saw the same person who made the snarky comment about me in my cassock and they said, oh my gosh, I love your t-shirt. This is amazing. We need more of this. Mm. And so there were totally those judgments made based off of what I was wearing. I am the exact same person. And I think the fact that I was celebrated for wearing a queer-friendly shirt and and not for wearing a cassock is just a microcosm of the challenge of the House of Deputies that we, we profess that we've got this big tent. There's room for everyone, no matter where you are. You know, the Episcopal Church welcomes you. But in practice, that is not actually true. Mm-hmm. And I think until in the House of Deputies, we can figure out how to bridge that gap. We're not going to see the, that vibe together. Mm-hmm. What was really cool, and, and part of, I think, that vibe you see at Lambeth that, that was an incredibly powerful and holy and moving moment, was there have been, um, you know, as we know, there have been schisms within the church before, and one of the things that happened at this diocesan convention, this general convention, was two dioceses actually merged into one. So Texas and Fort Worth, and Fort Worth was one of the dioceses that a lot of them had left, and there was this. It was the the last thing we did at convention, and it was this very holy and powerful moment of voting to reunite those dioceses. And actually, their motto was "Better Together," and that was a great moment of saying like, you know, this is what's possible and this is what we should be thinking about is how can we come together, not despite our differences, but with our differences, with what things that make us unique and allow us to have that full spectrum that makes the Episcopal Church and Anglicanism so wonderful for that shared mission and ministry together. And so I think that was a great example of what I wish would be would be more common at convention, that, reckons that, that conciliar tone than the, oh, you're a high church person, so clearly you're bad and you think women shouldn't be priests and, you know, gays are evil. None of which are actually... Sure, there's people who think that. I am not one of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah.
1: Definitely. So if the convention committee called and they said, Alvin Dante, we want you to come and help plan, what is something that you would sort of institute to create... That community, because like, you know, three years out, who's going to go. So you could work over those three years to create that intentional community in the bishops. I mean, I'm not volunteering to be on that planning committee. <laughs> but like, do you think that like adding that intentionality would create more space? Do you think that's not something people are interested in? What would be like if you were on the planning committee, you'd be like this, this is this is my thing.
2: So well, just thinking about relationships, one of the first things that I would do is, so dioceses typically elect their deputies two years in advance. And so actually at our diocese convention just the other weekend, we elected our deputies for the 2024 general convention. Olive and I are, you know, we get to go again, which is very exciting. So we know two years in advance, typically, who's going to go. And so I wonder what it would look like if so, you know, bishops have their table groups, if there were opportunities to say, not that we have table groups in the same way, but we're going to pair, we're going to kind of take these deputies because the names all get sent to the wider church and we're all going to get put into groups and like we're, we're experts on Zoom now. And, you know, once a quarter between when you're elected in general convention, your group gets together just for conversation and build relationships and intentionally having being so that deputies, you don't have multiple deputies from the same diocese. And just to then hear stories about what's happening in other places. And I wonder if that could start to turn a little bit of that tide. Because even though we may all never be elected again, we at least then have some relationships being there. And so I could talk to somebody from the Diocese of Navajo Land, or the Diocese of Honduras, or the Diocese of Vermont. We can be a group together. And then as the issues that are going to come to convention come up, we start having those conversations and can say, oh, you know, I've never thought about it this way, or oh, huh we disagree, but I've really come to like you. And so what does that say? So I wonder if that might be one of those things. I would also, um, have, uh, change some of the worship things we do and including, um, I would love to actually see us use right one at general convention. Hmm. There's a large number of people in the Episcopal Church who that is their That's the right they lean to. Um, I'm developing a better reput- rep- uh, reputation at diocesan meetings. When someone says the Lord be with you, I responded with "thy spirit. Um, we don't typically we'll do enriching our worship, all sorts of other things. I'm like, that's also an important part of our heritage. And I wonder, particularly because I think those who tend to be more liturgically traditional are increasingly feeling ostracized from, like, the church. I think that go a huge way to add to that of saying, there's nothing wrong with right one. It is an mm-hmm. authorized liturgy of the church. I think personally, it is quite beautiful and poetic. Yeah. The language if, is wonderful, right? And if we're going to do all, if we're going to enriching our worship things, which are also wonderful and great in their own right. Why don't then we also have... I mean, we do a lot of worship in general convention. I think we can have right to, right one, enriching our worship and, you know, whatever else we're going to do all together, um, because I feel like we've been we pushed to say, only this is the acceptable way of being in the church, mm-hmm. which adds to that sense of isolation.
1: Those both seem like very thoughtful and simple things to implement, too. <laughs> I think that's always interesting. Um, but I also think that um, it always seems like a larger pull, than it actually is adding a simple right one service is not revolution no offense but it's like no, not a exactly. revolutionary idea okay,
2: so there's a tv show that i really love um i'm such a weirdo it's a 1970s bbc sitcom called are you being served <laughs> <laughs> it is a great show and so but there's this, there's this line in the show one of the characters you know there a new salesperson on the men's counter comes a new senior salesperson and he has this line that says if we take care of the little things The big things will take care of themselves. Mm. And I think there's, it's this very funny moment about like organizing a sock drawer in the show. But I think there's something true about churches that like, if we thought, if we focus on those little things, like how hard is it to divide a bunch of people? Like Zoom will do that automatically for you, right? Like how hard is it to divide a bunch of people and say, get together once a quarter, have some conversations, commit to praying for one another? There's a radical idea. Having those are like little things that then the impact of will be significantly greater Mm -hmm. than like, hey, we're going to do one Eucharist that's right one. Please, Mm -hmm. General Convention, do one right one Eucharist. Prayer one would make me so incredibly happy, but, you know. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I also think that General Convention kind of creates like these coalitions within the House of Deputies of various Mm -hmm. people that identify from various backgrounds. So like there was a young people one, there was, you know... um, a queer one there was a one for people of color so if these are already organically happening why can't we intentionally take people from maybe different groups that would disagree and come together and do like intentional prayer for each other why can't we come together build relationships because at the foundation, we should be having relationships. Um, And relationships steeped in prayer. And I also think that more prayer throughout the actual convention would be helpful. We have, like, this prayer leader person. A chaplain. Chaplain. (laughs) Okay, but, like... (laughs) So we have a chaplain (laughs) and um, they were very dynamic, but also like why we can't have just more prayer throughout or why we can't have worship in smaller groups um, during breaks so that it's, there is something powerful about being so many people together, but also there's something powerful about not a lot of people together worshiping at the same time. You know, some of Mm -hmm. the most profound worship experiences I've had were a three-person Eucharist, you Mm know?
2: I think, and we didn't get this this time because they kept the House of Bishops and the House of Deputies separate, Mm -hmm. but, I mean, I can think of my first time I was at General Convention and the Sunday Eucharist happened, and we're talking thousands and thousands of people were there and it was this unbelievable experience of you have bishops and deputies and volunteers and visitors and all these people mm-hmm. together worshiping, which is amazing. when then you're right. Those small gatherings. I mean, like what would it look like if, I don't know, we have this thing called the daily office, morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening prayer, Clamplin, there were opportunities for people to gather and say, noonday prayer doesn't take long. Like, what if we said 15 minutes and like in your in your groups that you set up, go play go pray noonday prayer together before you go to lunch? Mm-hmm. Go at the end of the day, hey. The Diocese of Rhode Island is going to get together, and we're going to pray Compline. And whoever wants to come join us, you're welcome to join us. We're going to be in, you know, conference room 47, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I I think it would be really cool.
1: And it's also interesting to see how other people pray. Like, I think we were at UIU together Mm -hmm. once, and they were doing the Eucharist. And in, um, I don't remember which country they were from. There was a group of people that, where they're from, um... The Lord's Prayer is sung and it's much longer, like it takes twice the amount of time. And they did it that way. And everyone was silent while they continued their prayer. And there was something really powerful about that, about seeing people not only in what using the prayer book, but doing it in their own language as well.
2: It, well, exactly. And I think, like, right, I'm biased. I like how we do worship here, like, particularly in my own parish where I'm in charge of that. Like, But there's really cool ways that people worship mm-hmm. in other places that are radically different than what we do in Rhode Island, mm-hmm. in other languages and bringing in other cultural aspects. Like, if we're going to claim to be this international church, which we are, then, like, let's actually do that and not just pat ourselves on the back and saying, we're international and we're multicultural. Like, let's actually do that. I mean, it was heartbreaking at this general convention to hear um, someone from one of the indigenous indigenous communities say, as we were rushing to do more liturgical things, saying, you know, we still haven't gotten the 1979 Book of Common Prayer in our language. Mm. Like, so can only think about that, like, right? So, like, 43 years ago, it's been 43 years, they still do not have it. And it was something, like, ridiculously late. I don't remember the year he said that they got the previous prayer book, the 1928 prayer book, In I think it was, like, in, he was talking about, I think, Lakota. That is so not okay that we have, we talk about the importance of indigenous ministry and these communities within our church. They are dioceses with full rights, and yet we're not able to get them scripture, the liturgies in their own language. Mm -hmm. Um, It should not take 50 years for somebody to get the liturgy in their language. So if we're gonna say, here's who we are and here are the things we value, then that's also gonna mean that parts of the church are gonna have to put the brakes on and wait so we can make sure everybody's able to come along with us and not just rushing ahead saying, we, this is the O'Quran oh, issue. We're going to do this. Leaving behind all the people who are actually impacted by it. So, yeah.
1: So sort of as our wrap-up, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you think is important? Anything we haven't touched on? Any like aha moment you had at convention that you really want to share?
2: So I think for me... I. I'm a major church geek. I love general convention. Um, I'm really pumped that I get to go again as a deputy from our diocese. And one of the the most kind of amazing moments, I think, for me actually happened, strictly speaking, after convention was over. So a group of us decided that we were going to take the train from Providence to Baltimore instead of flying. And on our train ride home, um, the bishops of the Diocese of Long Island were in the same train car as us. And we were all having some conversation. And then it was like, well, let's go out to them. And so myself and one other person from the Rhode Island group, we went to talk to Bishop Provenzano and and Bishop Wolf, who's an assisting, our former bishop, who's an assisting bishop there. And there was just this wonderful, and Bishop um, Bill Franklin was there as well. And there was just this wonderful spirit of like, something new is happening. We are being invited into, into a new way of being Anglicans in this world. And a way that can truly blend in our wonderful, ancient, mysterious practices, and I don't necessarily mean mysterious as in like, ooh, murder mystery type, but that like ancient, mysterious way which we worship and where the world is now and responding in a particular way, right? Like COVID means all bets are off. So many things that we used to rely on aren't possible and aren't happening. And while that can strike fear and uncertainty, I think that's also an opportunity for hope and possibility because it means that we can really, with fresh eyes and open ears, listen to what's the new thing God's calling us to do. I mean, we don't have the same luxury of time we've always had. We can see trends and things in the church, and instead of becoming self-fulfilling prophecies, we can say, starting today, we're going to do something different. And I think the general convention sets that tone. And so I hope and am excited for the ways that we will continue to find to honor our Anglican history and heritage, not forsaken because we have something particularly wonderful to offer to the world, And how do we bring in that, how do we take that same message for the world today, um, which isn't just throwing out everything, you know, ancient about the church, but how do we bring that to this present moment? Because I do think the way we live into our Christian tradition and heritage can say particularly things about work of full inclusion, about work around the climate crisis, and all of those other things around economics and social parity and equity. We can do that, but it's going to mean doing things differently and. We don't like change so much. And so I think there's, we got to shift mm-hmm. the framework from scarcity minded to abundance, from fear to hope. So that's what I hope we will bring into 2024 at our next General Convention.
3: I think just one thing that wasn't mentioned was about how there was room for flexibility and the spirit in addressing what was happening within the context. So actually, our first day there, right outside of the hotel where, and like the convention center where we were meeting, a man died by gun violence. And I actually, I was sitting in the hotel room reading over my um, resolutions for the next day and I heard the gunshot. And it kind of brought back that what we were doing It's happening within an actual context and not just like Episcopal land. And the bishops then, um, with a bunch of other people, the next day went to the place where this person died to kind of address the gun violence that was occurring. And I thought that that was one, an appropriate thing to do to address the tragedy that had just happened, but also to respond to the spirit and what was actually happening within the larger context. And I think that in one small way, the general convention, although kind of a manifestation of the bureaucracy of the church, also can do more and adapt and respond to where the spirit is taking us within a particular moment.
1: Well, thank you both so much for being with us today. Um, Dante, if we wanted to connect with you, how socially and online would we do that?
2: Um, so people can find me on uh, on the Book of Face, um, either <laughs> me personally, Dante Tablero, or um, St. Thomas Church on there um you can follow me on instagram at 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 father ducky fr ducky um yeah and also like if you're old school you can send me an email or or call me or just like come swing by st thomas so if you see a white honda fit in the parking lot generally that means i'm here so just like come by and say hello and um we're also doing some cool stuff here and so you know come check us out
1: awesome and olive if we want to connect with you or your church how would we do that
3: so, I avoid social media at all costs. <laughs> um, so, I, I don't recommend recommend that you find me on Instagram or no. the Book of Face. but come on down to Redeemer in Providence um, on Hope Street, or um, you can look us up on the web. They actually have a Facebook page, so...
2: And an Instagram. And a really
3: good Instagram (laughs) It's true. So I would definitely recommend following Church of the Redeemer, (laughs) and um, I will probably be there on a Sunday. Great. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Ivy. They live
0: not only in ages past, there are hundreds of thousands still. The world is... With the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will You can meet them in school, or in lanes, or at sea In church, or in trains, or in shops, or at tea For the saints of God are just folk like me And I mean to be one too
2: Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology, a ministry of St. John's Cathedral in Rhode Island. We would like to thank our producers, Ivy Swinsky and Taylor Wilkie. Special thanks to Moa Conde and David Hines for our music. Our sponsors, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. Follow us at Teatime Theology on all social medias. Also, if you would like to donate to our podcast, please visit ko-fi.com backslash tea theology.